Greetings from Covenant Community of LJ, Georgia. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to these messages God has provided to our fellowship from His Word. May He bless you richly as you seek Him. We'd like to invite you to be with us in person someday soon. And for information on that, visit us at covenantcommunitylj.com. And now, let's open up God's Word. We have the privilege of opening up the Word of God. Isn't that amazing? That God has given us His Word that we can discover who He is and find wisdom in our life and how to live it and how to relate to this incredible God. I'm excited about it. I pray that your heart is ready and your Word is open. And let's dig into Judges chapter 6 and we're going to go right into Judges chapter 7. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I'm going to try and do my best to bring out what I believe God has for us, but there's way more uh, than what I can even get to this morning. I hope that God will drag you into studying and digging into what God has for you in this. This, this as we're digging into the second part of Gideon's story, I believe this is about a war for worship, a war over your worship, and we're going to make sense of that. If you weren't here last week, let me back up a little bit. We, we talked a little bit about Gideon's story, and we find him... Uh, born in Israel at a time where things were going south. In the last seven years, uh, Israel had been basically submitted to the enemy of the, the Midianites who'd been plundering their land, stealing their food, keeping them in oppression. They were living in submission and fear and in hiding, and there was no longer even a battle. They just were laying down, and the enemy was taking over. And this was a time of, of darkness and, and fear and difficulty in and in Israel. And we looked back last week, and in some ways we were kind of frustrated that they weren't fighting back. And we sort of looked at it and said, it's possible for us to get comfortable in our submission to sin and forget our God. It's possible for that to happen for us to drift so deeply into sin that we lose sight of what's most important. Even we quit fighting. But God allowed pain in their lives, pain to, to cause them to cry out to their God. And they did. They cried out to God, and God comes to rescue them. And he does it through a judge. That's what we call Gideon. The book of Judges is a cycle of, of God's people sort of seeing God and, and beginning to worship him fully when the, when the times were good. Then they begin to compromise and seek ways to meet their own needs without depending on God. I don't know if that sounds familiar. They don't like his timing. They don't like how he's going about it. He's forbidden some things, but they said, no, we're going to take care of our needs our way. We don't want to wait on him. That eventually led to all-out rebellion against God until they almost forgot him entirely. And then they began to worship other things. And then God would, would, would hear them when they got to rock bottom, and he would, he, would, he would speak into that. And I believe they would respond. They would cry out to God because of what they went through. And he would send a judge to lead them out of that into repentance and victory and freedom. This cycle would repeat. This is the fifth one. And last, last week, just so you know, the main things we wanted you to get was we are supposed to, just like Gideon, acknowledge our circumstances. Don't go to sleep. Things are bad. Circumstances are crazy. It's time for us to wake up and see what God uh, has allowed in our life. It may be for our good to bring us to repentance so that he can lead us into joy. We, we understand it, how important it is for us to acknowledge who we are in this. God speaks into Gideon's life and calls him a mighty warrior. And that might sound crazy, but that's what you are if Christ is in you. And that's an amazing thing. God knew that he would be with Gideon. 
And while there wasn't enough might in Gideon to free Israel, he knew that he would be with him. Remember who you are in Christ. And then Gideon confirms the word of the Lord and then submits to it in obedience. And the, the fourth thing was we talked about how he tore down his father's altars, uh, the altar to Baal and Ashtoreth. He tore down the old altars, tore them down because he had seen God. He'd seen the glory of the Lord. The angel of the Lord had appeared to him, done something miraculous. He touched with his staff a, a, some food on a stone, and it devoured the food in flames, and he vanished in his sight. It confirmed that he was hearing from the Lord, and he walked out in obedience, and he tore it down. And he made a peace offering unto the Lord out of those false, counterfeit gods that had led them into, into uh, submission to the enemy. It's a triumphal moment in Gideon's family and those thousand people. But we look at this and we see that not only is that important for them, it's also important to us today because the circumstances Gideon faced, we said this last week, are very similar to what we face. And we realize that many of us have given in and we've allowed ourselves to drift to a place of complacency, maybe even all out rebellion toward God. But he's allowed some circumstances in our life that are calling to us to come back to the Lord in repentance. And I believe that there were some who may have done that this week where, where they went home and they got the bull out and pulled down some altars that tore down some, some false gods in their lives. I remember hearing a couple of stories this week and it honestly went a lot like the rest of this story. I hope that, that, that maybe you're testing God in this, that you're tearing down some idols in your life and working through that because I know that God wants to lead us into an incredible joy in our relationship with him. You don't have to live in captivity. God has called you to an abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. God wants that for each of us. I said this last week as well. I believe that God desires to raise up men and women in the same way he raised up Gideon in every family that will live their lives and lead their families in the power of the Holy Spirit. Coming out of where Gideon was hiding in the wine press, instead of whining in the wine press, that's the way we said it, into freedom and fields of joy. Because God brought them out. We had an awesome time in Isaiah 55, just looking at how God brings us into joy. It's so beautiful. God wants that for you and your family. We're praying that God will raise that up. Today, we're going to shift into the rest of the story. And we're going to see, I want you to get this one observation about destroying idols. I'm going to give you three truths that I believe will give you courage to fight with the weapons that you've been given. They're kind of weird. These are strange weapons, but I, I want you to know what they are so that you can fight with your, uh, for your sake and for your families. And I'm praying that God will cause each of us to see this whole battle in a new light, that God will give you clarity about what's actually happening, the battle that's being fought in your heart and what it's all about, and in doing so that you'll understand your role and what it means to be obedient. Before we get going, I want you to get this statement because this is so important. You were born, you were created to worship the one true God and no one else, right? That's what you were created for. If you ever wondered why you're here, that's the answer. The Bible tells you, like, what is the meaning of life? This is the answer. You were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were created as a worshiper. Your eternal destiny is to be with God for eternity, worshiping and bringing glory to the only thing that is worthy of your worship, our glorious and incredible God. That is what you're made for. You are incredibly good at doing that. 
And the enemy knows that's why you're made, and so he's corrupted that very thing. I brought this out saying that this is really about a war on worship. We get to see a war on the Midianites, but this is really a war for your worship. The enemy has corrupted what you worship, and God, through the gospel, is restoring that for your good and for his glory, that he gets the glory that he deserves. Because God knows this. He's not just an egomaniac. He knows that if you worship anything else, it will not support the weight of your worship, and it will leave you incredibly disappointed and submitted to lesser things that cannot come to your aid, that cannot satisfy the longings in your soul. The, the most good thing that God can do is be for his glory. The, the, the kindest thing he can do is to be for his glory. The most loving thing he can do for us is to be for his glory and fight for that worship because that is what you're made for. And when you do what you're made for, there's a sense of satisfaction. It is war. And I want to welcome you, if you didn't realize that's what this was about, welcome to the battle. <laughs> welcome to the battle for your worship. This is God's obsession with idolatry and false gods all throughout scripture. It's because he is glorious and he's made you to worship him. And this battle just echoes into every part of our life. And so much of our sin and our addictions and our habits and all these things are compensating for this thing that we can't control that which we worship. And that's, that's a difficult thing for us. And I want to get into it. So here's my, the rest of this passage. We'll make an observation really quick and then move into these truths. If you look in chapter 6, verse 28, let's pick up. Gideon overnight has torn down these altars to these false gods that promise fertility, that promise abundance, that promise the good life. But instead, under their leadership, they found themselves in submission to the enemy, hiding from the Midianites with handfuls of provision in their life instead of harvest the way that God desired for them. And so the story is Gideon tore down his dad's altars that were on the property overnight. He did it at night because he knew it was going to anger people. All right, let's read this in verse 28. It says, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Ashtarah beside it was cut down. And the second bull, the two bulls, was offered on the altar that had been built. So he offers this sacrificial offering to God, this blood sacrifice, beautiful picture of the gospel even then, how God is able to forgive our sin. This is a picture of what happens if you're dealing with idolatry. I want you to know that the answer to that is Jesus. He is the one who's able to forgive. He is the ultimate sacrifice. This bowl is a, a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would eventually come and shed his blood on your behalf so that you could be forgiven of your sin. This is an incredible picture of grace right here in the Old Testament. These people that have turned on God, betrayed him, abandoned him, they offer this sacrifice to God, looking ahead to the Messiah who would once come. And they, oh man, it's awesome. And God forgives. Let's, let's keep going though. Verse 29. And they said to one another, once they see this thing, who has done this thing? And after they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town, verse 30, said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. I mean, they were ready to kill him. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash, he answers. First, before we do that, I want you to get this. Do you hear their anger? They've torn down our idols. This is no small thing. We're not a little tweaked. We're not a little upset about this. Bring him out, that he may die. I'm like, wow, the intensity there. We'll get into that. This is a life and death thing. 
verse 31, it says, but Joash, this is beautiful, fathers, <laughs> check this out, he's not so proud that he just stands without even learning anything, this is beautiful, this is the father of Gideon, he's, he's seeing this for what's actually happening, we'll talk about it more in a second, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal, will you save him, in other words, he's saying, he's looking, by the way, at a burnt up offering that's now an altar to God, that's what's left of Baal and Ashtoreth. And last night, some guys who were supposed to be worshiping these idols tore them down. Baal did not defend himself. They showed themselves even more powerful than the things that they worshiped, right? And now the townspeople wake up to see the very object of their worship in a pile of rocks burnt up, covered in ashes, still smelling like smoke. Can you imagine? And Joe asks his dad, I love it, he gets it, he's like, hmm. Kind of thought Baal was a big deal. I think that's what's going on in his head. There's this exposure that happens. This is cool. And, and, and so, <laughs> this is what the father says. Whoever contends for Baal, him, shall be put to death by morning. In other words, if any of you picks up a sword to fight for Baal on his behalf, I personally will see to it that you die. And here's why. He said, if he is a god, little g, <laughs> let him contend or let him fight for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. In other words, it's like the dad steps in and he says, look, if Baal is worthy of our worship, let Baal defend himself against these guys who pulled this altar down in the middle of the night. None of you guys get involved. Y'all sit back. And so they renamed him. They're like, you're the guy Baal wants to kill. That's what his name became. You're the guy Baal's coming after. But yet nothing actually happens. Look at verse 33. Listen to this change. It says, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. You've got this huge army that's formed and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him and he sent messengers to Asher Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet him meet them this is awesome you guys, I want to look at this for a second. This is a quick observation. We're going to rehash just a little bit of this and move forward. Destroying idols is painful. <laughs> like, I sent, I sent us out of here feeling like the Lord had told us to go and destroy the idols in our lives. And this kicked my tail all week long. And listen, destroying idols hurts. When you find them, tearing them down is hard. And I started asking, like, why, why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard? It may even feel like it's impossible to do for yourself. Now, it, it seems like it's easier, and we could easily go and tear down somebody else's idols, somebody else's altars, but tearing down our own, like it's tough. Why is it such an easy thing for somebody else? It's so incredibly painful for us. And I think that that question goes back to what is an idol and what is it actually doing in our life? And I gotta move fast here. I, I'm gonna go back to Steve. Steve and I were talking about this this weekend. He's got a great uh, definition here that I've, I've loved to use over the years. Steve describes it as any source of satisfaction, any source of security or significance that you have in your life that you depend on so much that you're willing to disobey God in order to keep into your life. 
I mean, you're willing to say no to God and yes to that because you've begun to depend on it for security, for satisfaction, for significance in your life. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. In Romans, Paul described it like this. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew better, but they chose not to worship him. So they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Because they exchanged, this is it, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen? Amen. So even in, in, in Romans, we've got these great definitions where we see that we are made to worship. And we're made to worship the one true God. And, and this is something G.K. Chesterton said that is just awesome. He says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We will worship anything. He said, not worshiping God doesn't lead to us just not worshiping him. It leads to us worshiping anything. We're so vulnerable because we're made to worship. You will worship something. And it may be several things. You're looking for something you can put your weight on. That's what an idol does. It, it brings us out. It's been said that the enemy of joy is not actually suffering. The enemy of joy is idolatry. And see, we can deal with all kinds of circumstances and suffering and difficulty in our life if our heart is set on him, if our eyes are fixed on him. But when idols creep into our life, it robs us of our joy and leads us into submission to our enemy. So that's, that's what an idol is. That's, that's what an idol does to your heart. And what has to happen for you to tear them down? I, I, I wanted to get into this more, but now that we're struggling with this, I think it's important to kind of see this. Listen, you're never, if you've tried to tear down an altar and you found it very difficult this week, you've tried tearing down some, some false gods, some idols in your life, I want you to get this. You need to get it. Tearing down an idol in your life is tough because you will never stop worshiping that idol until you see something more glorious than that idol. You're not ever going to look at that thing and be like, I will stop worshiping you. I will stop being controlled by you. And focus there. If your focus is entirely on that, letting go of something that you actually really love, you're constantly going to want to you'll be pining for it. You know what I'm saying? We've all been there, right? And the moments we felt most free from those things that grabbed us were not the moments when we were at the peak of self-discipline. It's the moments that came natural when we were at the peak of being in view of our God and beholding Him in His glory. And as we see Him like that, everything else just begins to darken and dim in light of who He is. When you see something more glorious, then your idol, you're free to tear them down. It's exactly what happened to Gideon. He had an encounter with God. He said, alas, I've seen the Lord. And immediately it became easy for him to tear down altars he'd been dependent on. It, it didn't take just condemning the idol. It went even beyond that. It's 
good to do that. We need that in our life. But it also came a lifting of Gideon's chin so that his eyes were fixed on the author and finisher of his faith. When he began to see God in his glory and he began to experience God in his glory, tearing down the idols was very much easier. That didn't mean it's never going to be a battle. It doesn't mean it's going to be a challenge. It doesn't mean that that doesn't have to happen daily. This is why we worship daily. This is why we worship together weekly. This is why we get in the Word daily. This is why we saturate our hearts and our minds with who God is, that we constantly stay in view of His glory so that we can be free of worshiping anything because we are so prone to do that. Nothing else can bear the weight of your soul and it'll rob you of your joy, lead you to disappointment, lead you to destruction. Matt Papa said this, I loved it. He says, we were created by God and for God. And until we understand that, we are restless, broken-hearted glory chasers, always seeking something more. Only God, the highest and greatest good, the infinite Holy One is finally enough. It's what we were made for. Joash stands up and says, let Baal fight for himself. An idol must be exposed for what it is, and God is in the business of doing that. As you tear down an idol, something happens in your heart, and maybe that you need to go ahead and just tear it down because you need to see God in his glory, but you also see to see these idols exposed for what they are. They woke up and they saw this crumbled, burnt up idol the next morning, and it itself became a reminder to worship the one true God. I'm, I'm telling you, be obedient with that. It reminded me of this hymn, and I'm going to read you through the next three of these truths, this hymn that seems to be in sync with this passage. This is one of my favorite hymns. I love it. I want you to get this. It says this, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Joash saw that. He had a changed heart. And he frees Gideon up. Instead of killing him, he almost agrees with him. And the truth put to action spread like wildfire all over the region. Did you catch this? It went out to all those different cities and tribes. And they began to, to come together because the truth had been stood on. It had been tested. God had shown himself glorious. They were walking in obedience. He, they cried out repentance. God was moving. And all of a sudden, people start coming out of the woodwork wanting to be a part of what they're seeing. This is awesome. And this is why I believe God wants to raise up somebody in every family, somebody's in every family that, that see the glory of God, start tearing down idols, start walking in joy. And man, the word spreads. <laughs> this is awesome. This army begins to assemble 32,000 people. And suddenly this submission, like submissive, defeated, terrified, paralyzed Israelites transformed into an army ready for war. Isn't that awesome? I love it. And the war they were fighting was about worship. It's about the idols versus the one true God. And God has one mission in all of this, to expose all other gods for what they are. It's a man-made false and counterfeit, and to expose himself as the one true God. The circumstances of the Israelites, to be honest, are secondary to what God is trying to reveal about himself to this nation for generations. And you get this. It is real. This is a story about God. It's awesome. But we see how this works out. Let's get into, into Judges chapter 7. I'm going to read this. We're going to fly through this. we got a lot to cover. Um, then 
Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early. Now, before this, uh, well, let me just keep reading. Rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You see God's mission in this? God's like, this 32,000, this big crowd of people, we actually have too many people. Because this is really not about you defeating the enemy in the most efficient way. This is really about me overshadowing these idols so that your hearts will turn to me. That was the bigger battle that God was fighting here. This is beautiful. Anyway, so he says, there are too many. You'll boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Verse 3. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned. They left. They went home. This mighty army, he says, if anybody's afraid, you've got some stuff going on, you want to go home, then you're free to go. And like two-thirds of the army walks off. They're like, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll let you guys handle that 135,000 army. You guys cover it. That'll be awesome. We're just going to go back home and watch TV. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking. Maybe some of them had good reasons. God is working, though. Verse 4, says, And the Lord said to Gideon, This is crazy. Can you imagine being in his army? The discouragement you just felt. Two-thirds of the army just left. Sometimes, I don't know. I, I've been in this situation. I've been in church long enough to be like, to come one day, and you're like, where did everybody go? Have you ever had that day? You came to your Sunday school class, and you're like, Hey. <laughs> you know? Went to your Bible study. Went to your small group. Oh, man. I love this. It's beautiful. I'm not going to get caught up in that. God speaks again. He says, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Not what I'd expect him to say. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. Verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and a number of those who lap, putting their hands down to their mouths, and was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. 300? And let... The others go, every man to his home. Send home 9,700 people. <sighs> like, so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he said all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. You guys stay here. But retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. This is cool. So God shows up. Can't you imagine? Gideon's like, awesome. I mean, you felt great when 32,000 people showed up. Then there's only 10,000. Now there's 300. If I were Gideon, I would need a little reassurance here. I would need God to show up and be like, hey, I, I know what I'm doing, and everything's going to be okay. And so I I'm not going to throw Gideon under the bus. Like, we skipped the part where he's throwing out fleeces. He's needed even more reassurance than we've had time to cover so far. Like, he's a very tentative, weak leader in a certain sense, but he's doing it. Isn't that cool? 
He's scared the whole time. There's never a moment where he's like, I got this. He's terrified the entire time. He's needing reassurance. Every step he takes, he's taken because God has coaxed him one step further. And I love this, that God does not condemn Gideon, nor does the New Testament. It just encourages him and says he was a man of faith. Because faith is demonstrated by how we act, how we demonstrate that by our obedience. That's where faith rises up in us. It's not just a thought. He didn't sit paralyzed. He was he was declared as a faithful man because he acted. He wasn't not without fear, but he was courageous and able to act through the fear because he'd heard the word of the Lord and acted in faith. But he needed reassurance again. In verse 9, it says, That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, it's like God knew, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what the Lord, what, hear what they say. So in other words, go down and listen. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So they do it. So they went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Verse 12, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that's on the seashore in abundance. They looked out and there were so many camels, it looked like a beach. This is crazy. They're like a, a, a giant of locusts out there ready to devour and eat up everything in their path. This is how they're described. Visually, this looks scary. He walks down. You're like, wait, I thought this was going to encourage him. <laughs> but look, Gideon, Gideon, it says, when Gideon came in verse 13, behold, a man was telling a dream. So they're hiding behind a rock or something, and they hear this man telling a dream to his comrade. And he says, and looks over at the guy, he's like, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His comrade answered, you know, this is none other. He's interpreting this dream. He's like, I know what your dream means. This is none other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. Gideon's listening to this, right? God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. <laughs> so Gideon sneaks by. Here's this conversation between these two soldiers. And they're like, I have this dream that this, this loaf of bread fell into the tent and knocked it upside down. God's like, it's like instant panic. God has given us over to Gideon. Like, he's going to roll over us like a loaf of bread. I love this. Gideon's like, so I'm the loaf of bread? <laughs> like, Gideon was a picture of the, the loaf of bread that actually did do this. It is the bread of life, Jesus, that did topple the enemy. But in this case, Gideon gets this picture of how something so small turns upside down the plans of the enemy. So, verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Good for you, Gideon. That's the point. He worships God. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. What? Not only do we not have 32,000 people, but you're not given swords. You're given a clay pitcher, a torch, and a trumpet. 
this is just like a bad plan, right? But look, he says, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. And when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon, right? So here they go off. They're going to surround the enemy with their clay pots with a torch inside, and then they've got a trumpet kind of on their side, and off they go. Let's think about that more in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp, the beginning of the middle of the, of the middle watch when they had just set the watch, right? They surrounded them in the middle of the night and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars and they held out their left hands with the torches and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah and as far, Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel Meholah and Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and all from Manasseh and pursued after Midian. And then God sent, or Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and all the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb and the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. And then they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. They defeated the enemy and literally chased them all the way across out of the promised land to the other side of the Jordan. It's beautiful. It's awesome. And so what do we get from this? And I'm going I'm to give you three things as quickly as I can so that we can see these truths that I believe will give you courage. To walk into the battle that God's called you to. Walk into the battle that God's called your family to. Because the specifics of the circumstances in this battle are important. But they also apply into us. And I want you to hear this. God fights this battle exactly the way he fights battles in our lives. And this is a beautiful picture of what I believe God wants to do in us. So the first truth I really want to give you is that Actually, I, I meant to give you this other one, and it makes more sense now. The first one I wanted to give you, and it's that first thing I was telling you, is we fight because we've seen the glory of God. We saw that in the early part. That's the first thing. We fight because of the glory of God. We fight because we've seen the glory of God. You don't tear down an idol until it's been overshadowed. You don't self-discipline it away. You worship it away. Self-discipline will come as you worship. Does that make sense? Self-discipline absolutely is fruit of the Spirit and required. You will have to put forth effort and hard effort and difficult struggle. It will be a challenge at times. But in every one of those times when you face that challenge, the solution will not be self-discipline alone. It will be to redirect your worship and to behold your God. In every case, that will be true. The first thing, we, we fight because we've seen his glory. second thing, we fight 
for the glory of God. Now let's back up to the beginning. We fight for the glory of God. God shows up in verse 2 of this. He says, the army's too big. Because if you win like this, you're going to boast about it and think that it was you. You're going to think, wow, we had a great strategy. And you're going to write a paperback and tell everybody how to do it. Like, you know, this is not so that you can be excited about what you accomplished. I really want to tear down your idol and I want to elevate who I am. That's what I'm about. You're fighting for my glory so that something's worth worshiping. You will worship me rather than these other things that will betray you and lead you to disappointment and struggle. So this 22,000 goes to 10,000 down to 300, which in case you're good at math, that's 450 to one. The odds are terrible. And in that moment, you're like, this is never going to work. This is an impossible task. It already was impossible because we were outnumbered, what is it, five to one before, almost five one, four to one at least. You know, we're already incredibly outnumbered before. Now it's, it's just outrageous. You know, I don't want you to see this. God gives grace to the tentative and he terrifies the enemy. He, he gives grace to the tentative, and he gives terror to the enemy. I love this. And we saw it when he goes down. This dream where this loaf of barley bread topples this whole tent, and, and, and they were in a panic. These two guys talking about this, realizing that God was going to give them over. They probably were aware of the odds. They probably were thinking there's still a, a decent-sized army, but we've got this without any trouble. And, and it would have seemed weird for them to think, we're going to lose. We've been whipping these guys for seven years, but it, we're done for now. God sent terror even into the enemy's hearts. This is beautiful because this is how God loves to work. I tell you, God fights this battle the way he fights other battles in our lives. We fight for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says this. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong because it's Christ in me, he says, that is at work, not just me in my own streets. It's actually my weakness. God whittles down that army down to 300 because God seems to prefer to work through the weakest vessels and the weakest places in our life to bring forth the biggest victories because he loves to point to himself. And so we are actually strengthened when we are weak because we walk in his strength and his power. I want to read you the second verse of this hymn that we're reading because it speaks to this. It says, Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. That's important. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The third thing I want to give you is this, that we fight not only because of the glory of God, we fight not only for the glory of God, that he would be glorified in our life, overcoming idolatry. We fight with the glory of God. Now, I, I want to get this almost as a weapon. Look at these strange weapons. Let's break these down. This is fun. What are these strange weapons they're fighting with? The mighty clay pitcher, right? The earthen vessel of power. You know, like, here we come 
We're going to take him on. I've got a torch. That could be sort of useful. I've got a trumpet. How do you think those 300 guys felt that night? Okay, this is a little awkward. I can almost see them walking off the, the, the little gathering and they're splitting off into the three companies and a couple guys are chit-chatting along the way like, well, this is different. This is not exactly what we trained for. No, this is uh, not what I was expecting. So it's been nice knowing you. Honored to stand beside you. Um, you know, maybe others were like, hey, look at my picture. This picture's awesome. Look at this thing. It's like perfect, man. It's like bigger than yours. I'm not going into this battle. I got this picture. It's better than your picture. Mine doesn't have any scratches. Mine doesn't have any holes in it. Mine doesn't have any kind of cracks or anything. Like, this is a legit picture. I got this one. When I smash this thing, man, it's going to be sweet. I got a picture. This, I'm, this picture is where it's at. You should have my picture, but I got it. I'm not trading. Like, right? Seems a little weird, right? I don't know if that's exactly what went down. I want, to, I want to read you a passage in, in the New Testament that I believe will, without me even coaxing you, without me even telling you what to see, I believe you're going to see it right away. And I, I'd love for you to just have the word speak to you rather than me spell all of this out. I just think the word speaks for itself so much. Listen to this. In light of what we're talking about, when I say we fight with the glory of, our, of, of God, this is the weapons of our warfare. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 4, I'm going to start at the beginning. It says this, Therefore, Paul is saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, saying, because I have this ministry, skip down to verse 3, it says, And even if, he's talking about sharing the gospel, he's writing this to a church in Corinth, and he's, he's encouraging them. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled, covered up, to those who are perishing. You have this torch covered up by dark clay, right? And they've got trumpet. They smash it. All of a sudden, the torch comes out, okay? It says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. This false counterfeit God has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. I did not add this. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Revealed, if you don't know manifest, is revealed in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested or revealed in our mortal flesh. 
So death is at work in us, but life in you, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They don't matter. The things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear all of that? I can't preach all of that fast enough to dig out all of that awesomeness for you. Meditate and read on this in light of what God does in Gideon, and you will understand more than what I'm able to speak on for now. Listen, we walk in the flesh, but we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now I'm reading 2 Corinthians 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. God right here is revealing to us the weapons are really about worship. It's about destroying the lie that has suppressed the truth about who God is. That is the battle that's being fought in our own hearts. Tearing down the lies, those idols, those false gods, the counterfeits, that we can see God in His glory and worship Him. That's so important. The weapons, he said, this is about our worship. So let's break this down because some of you guys might be kind of new to Scripture. You may have zoned out when I was reading that. So we're going to break this down, okay? What is the significance of these items that we're talking about? What's the significance of the clay pitcher? Why, why clay pitcher? If you were looking for who you are in this story, I would like to introduce you the clay pitcher. <laughs> I'm not saying you can't learn from the other people in here, but I want you to see this. You are quite literally an earthen vessel. God has described us as literally vessels of clay with a treasure inside. And, and I, I often think about this, and the reason why I was talking about these warriors going to battle comparing their clay pots is because it's a lot like us at church. Wow, look at this. I mean, look at my clay pot. No cracks, no holes. Good paint job. Literally no weaknesses. Really well-made clay pot. I mean, you should be impressed. I'll be useful in this battle. Watch me. Like, you want this clay pot to take into the battle. Because the battle will be won because I am an awesome clay pot. I'm a little bit thicker than all them. I'm a little stronger. Listen, that, this is what we sound like in church sometimes, facing this massive army. We're like, wow, look at me. Look at my gifting. Look at my might. What I'm capable of, I don't even sin anymore. I covered them up with a great paint job. They're really there, but I painted over them. You can't see them. Y'all see this? And God is like, you're like jars of clay. You got a treasure inside. Paul, even in Corinthians, he's saying, we're pressed down, we're crushed. I mean, almost. We're like, come within. I mean, we're broken, but we're not destroyed. There's this treasure who's Christ, and he's manifesting himself in our bodies. As we are, are literally, our flesh is being put to death. Christ is being manifested in us. As we die daily to our flesh, as we are broken, the treasure is revealed. And listen, no army is intimidated by a beautiful clay pitcher. 
The enemy is intimidated by the glory of God. When they begin to understand that they are surrounded by the glory of God, that's, it changes everything. The clay pot, its role in the story was to be broken. See, God breaks us because he wants to reveal who he is. It's not about, Christianity is not about becoming the most beautiful clay pitcher. Christianity is about being broken so that the treasure inside of you can be revealed. You are not the Savior. Christ is the Savior. He is the one who can defeat the army. He is the one that those who are lost need to see. He is the one that those worshiping other gods need to behold. And when they do, it's the beginning of everything that changes in our lives. This is where the battle is fought for our worship. Our job in it is to be broken as power is made perfect in our weakness. The, significant of the uh, significance of the torch. I really want to say this, I believe, is the glory of God. If we go back to uh, the passage in Corinthians, it says... The struggle here is that they have, the unbelievers have been blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, that's very much what needs to happen. And that's why he says, let light shine out of darkness. And it's shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God. So they see how glorious he is. And, and how do you see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. You want to know, okay, you're telling me to behold the glory of God. I, I, Look at Jesus. Look at his life. Look at what he did when he was here on earth. Look at what he did on the cross. Look at what he did in his resurrection. Look what he's going to do when he comes again. Look at Christ and you will see the image of God. Jesus says, if you see me, you've seen the Father. If you want to behold the glory of God, look at him. And in no place is the picture more complete than in his crucifixion and his resurrection. And if he raises up in heaven, you see him placed in all authority. It is incredible. Spend time in the gospel. Spend time looking at who he is. Behold him in his glory. And God will speak to you and reveal his glory in your brokenness. This trumpet is important because I believe it is your worship. Okay? The trumpet's important because it's your worship. I love that they break out the trumpets. And back in Corinthians, it says, we proclaim Jesus. We proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We do this serving you. We do this for you. We do this with intentionality to make sure we're not pointing anyone to ourselves. We are here to point people to you, proclaiming who you are. I believe that's the picture of this trumpet in this passage. But we proclaim that, that Jesus is Lord. The word Midianites came from this whole thing. Strife is the word. Midian's name is strife, trouble, struggle, difficulty. It's almost like they're blowing the trumpet, proclaiming to the strife. Jesus is Lord. Isn't that awesome? Speaking over strife. Christ is king, and I serve him. And proclaiming Jesus, proclaim Jesus to your sin. Proclaim Jesus to your enemy. And then proclaim Jesus to yourself. Like I say, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Remind yourself of what's true, that you can step into your part of being sanctified in Christ. Blow your trumpet. Worship. 
Celebrate who he is. Proclaim what's true in your life with boldness. Don't sit back and take it. Break out your trumpet. When you get broken in your life and the glory of God is revealed, you take out that trumpet and you blow it with some power behind it and proclaim the gospel that we've been rescued. That's what our world needs to hear. That's what we need to hear. It's what our families need to hear. It's what transforms us. And the lost, the sin, I believe the enemy will flee and tear themselves apart in view of his glory. And I think the lost will see and find mercy and come to a place of repentance. Listen, they will see him and they will see his glory and they will repent. They'll place their faith in him and come and live. And then you chase your enemy back across that Jordan River under the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus with Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. That's the deal. And God wants you to get out of the whining in the wine press to be free, joy, and farming in your fields. The harvest that glorifies God, that other nations would be jealous and they'd see God and turn to worship Him. God desires to reveal Himself with you. And so we fight because we've seen the glory of God. We fight for the glory of God because He is who we love. We desire to see Him lifted up. We know it's the solution to everything. And we fight even with the glory of God revealed in the gospel with Jesus Christ. By being broken and allowing that treasure to expose idols and to point people to the grace and mercy and beauty of the gospel. That is why we're here. That's what we do. The battle is for our worship. If we have any hope of freedom, it begins with seeing God in his glory. Behold our God seated on the throne. Nothing can compare to him. It's a beautiful song. You should go read it. This last verse of this hymn that I've been reading, I think is beautiful. Guys, if you want to go ahead and come, uh, come on up. We're going to respond now. It says, his word shall not fail you. He promised, believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you would stand with me, they're about to sing. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If you would just bow your head with me, I want to encourage you just to listen and ask God, say, is there any, search me and see if there's any way in me that is against you. Have I, have I elevated affections to the level of idol in my life? Have I gone to them for satisfaction, for security, for significance? Have I obeyed them rather than you? And you may just want to pray, God, I want to, be, I want to be in this field of joy. I'm tired of hiding from the enemy. I'm tired of being intimidated by the size of their army. I want to be in view of the size of my God. And I'm willing to trust you. I want to see you. And some of you are like, I don't get it. What do you mean, behold our God? I don't, I don't understand it. It's not something you can do with your eyes. It's something that God can do in your heart, and he will reveal it. But ask him to right now say, God, reveal yourself to me. I, I, I don't always get it. I see people that are super excited about you, and I wonder why, and I just don't. It's never been in me. God, if you're really there, then reveal yourself. Open my eyes. Help me to see. I'm willing to see if you're willing to show me. And then I want you to fix your eyes on what you know about the cross. 
that he, the perfect son of God, the creator of all mankind, hung on the cross, enduring the punishment for our sin, every rebellious way we had. He took the punishment of God and then says, Father, forgive them. He turns around and offers us forgiveness that he purchased on our behalf. He rose from the grave and conquered death. He's already conquered sin. And now he's in heaven preparing a place for us, our eternal destiny, where we will worship the thing we've been looking for our entire life. Nothing else can satisfy you. Look to the cross. Repent of your sin. Put your faith in Jesus. Come to him and say, I am yours. I don't want to worship anything else. I'm tearing down all the other idols. You are my king and there is no other. Bow before him. Behold him. And honor him and worship him. And he will save you and rescue you as you repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're a believer and you've allowed yourself, you've presented your members back unto sin and are experiencing what feels like slavery, Christ has already declared you free, but you're living in the cell and the door is wide open. I want you to see the glory of God and I want you to come repent of those other things that have stepped between you and God. Ask God to give you a pure heart for him alone and it leads you in repentance and take your family with you, take your town with you, and let's watch and see God chase the enemy back across the Jordan. This altar will be open for you to respond however it is that God calls you to. I'll be here, Steve will be here. If you need just to pray for you, encourage you, uh, if you have questions, if there's so much more to say, but if we can help you in any way, we will be here, and uh, we're here to serve you. Band, if you'll play, come pray here, come pray in the back there, there are cushions back there if you want to kneel, you can also do that here. And uh, we believe God will speak. Father, do in us what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you one more time for taking the time to listen to these messages that God's provided our fellowship. We believe he's doing something special among us and would love for you to be a part of it. We hope that you'll take the time to come and visit us in person someday soon. And we invite you to visit our website, covenantcommunitylj.com. There you'll find information on how to contact us if you have a prayer request or if there's a specific way we can minister to you and your family. Until then, God bless you.